Well, this morning I'm on light duty. I'm just going to do a scripture reading for you guys and then run right out of the building. I'm just kidding. But I don't, I don't, I'm not teaching this morning, so I'm uh, just going to do our opening reading, and that's going to be from 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, if you guys want to turn there with me, you can. But this is how we'll start off our time this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to begin by reading uh, this passage from 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6. Peter writes at the end of his letter, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Carson, my, there we are. <laughs> well, if you don't know me, I'm BJ. I am uh, a staff pastor here, normally in charge of the youth. Um, and every now and then they throw me up here and see what happens. So it's a good time. <laughs> it's a good time. I tell you, it's, it's such a blessing um, serving in a church where the worship team is so in tune with the passage that you're going through. That worship set felt like pre-sermon. It felt like the, like just the whole sermon just wrapped up in a worship set, which is so cool. Uh, if you haven't been with us before, or if you have missed our most recent weeks, we are in the Gospel of Mark, as you can see on the screen, and we are in chapter 1. So you can open up to Mark 1. And as we're diving into Mark, I can't help but think about where we were before Christmas break. Before Christmas break, we weren't in Mark at that point. We were um, going through the Advent series uh, through Matthew, the story of how Jesus came to us. Um, as, a, as a humble baby, we saw his parents, and um, I can't help but think back to that, because where we left off was Mary and Joseph holding and caring for a very typical healthy little baby. No different than any other Jewish baby that you would have in the region at the time. Uh, the promised hope of the world wrapped in a swaddling cloth. Jesus would be raised in the quiet town of Nazareth, from his infancy, working his young adult life as a carpenter, a carpenter. I don't know, I, I love that. I just, I know like pastors hound on that, but if you really think about carpenters, it's, it's so special. Can you imagine house shopping in that region? Two bed, one bath, constructed by God Almighty. Um, <laughs> would you like to see his brochure? <laughs> <laughs> Great desert views. And you're like, wow. How much are you charging for it? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Whatever you offer, you're going to feel guilty about it later. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jesus lived a normal, quiet life. He lived a normal, quiet life, complete with parents, school, and a regular nine to five. Didn't dive into ministry until 30. Roughly 30, anyways. We're not going to find any details of that portion of Jesus's life in Mark. It's not there. It's not in that account of the gospel. And why not? 
Yes, I think that is a good question to ask. Why not? Why isn't it there? Why is it not in Mark? That is easily answered, actually. In the very first Mar- uh, verse of Mark, Mark 1.1, should be on the screen for you, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has his eyes set on a very specific aspect of Jesus' earthly experience. He surely did that with good reason, meaning that in order to best understand what God is telling us through this account, we are going to try our best to do the same. I'm going to mostly resist the urge to fill in detailed gaps from other biblical gospel accounts. So I think Mark did that on purpose. I think the Holy Spirit inspired him that way on purpose. We were given very few specific details in Mark, and they're quite rich details. Um, so let's hone in on those. Let's just hone in on those as we're reading through Mark. Starting with, today, well, starting last week, but today we're going to be starting with his baptism. And this is uh, verses 9 through 11, if you're there in Mark. I'm going to read these verses 9 through 11. It says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, we saw, uh, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. In those days, he says. Well, that's not very specific wording. (laughs) It's not a whole lot of detail in there. Mark is not concerned with the exact day that Jesus arrived. He doesn't inform us, the readers and hearers, if you will, with the conversation between Jesus and John. Yet he highlights a huge, huge fact here. And with all the other details stripped away, we can kind of hone in on this fact. Jesus was baptized. And by a man, a person baptized God. What? Why? Why? I looked at Mike for a reason on that. It doesn't seem to make sense if you know the purpose of John's baptism. If you know the purpose of John's baptism, you would look at it and say, why? Look back at verse 4. We read, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism of repentance, to turn from every evil way, to turn your life around in preparation for the removal of sins from the one that would be to come. That's what John's ministry was all about. So why would God, the perfect Messiah, why would Jesus do that? If he is sinless, what possible purpose could John's baptism hold for Jesus. Yes, again, I think that is exactly the right question. What purpose does Jesus have for being baptized? I grew up in churches where um, there wasn't a whole lot of explanation behind that, uh, mostly because, like me, they probably had just kind of read that and acknowledged God does what God wants to do. 
He was doing it in, in obedience to God. God told him to, so he did it. So it just makes sense. Of course he would. But that doesn't really get to the reason. You still have to ask, well, why did God want him to get baptized? And so there's always this itch in the back of your head. Or it's like, it's not quite, I can't scratch it. There's still something there. Why do you get baptized? And then God's like, you're scratching the wrong spot. It's over here. Ah. Asking the wrong question. I did not have an answer to this until Mike, sitting in his office chair, goes, wow. And he turns around, me and Ellie, and he's like, you guys got to hear this. You guys got to hear this. And he read to us a quote from G. Campbell Morgan's um, commentary on the Gospels. And hearing it from him, I was like, wow. And then later, when I read that same commentary, I got to that spot in the commentary again. I read it, and again, I said, wow. And then I looked in it, and there was a little cliff note right next to it that Mike had written there, and it just said, wow. (laughs) Wow. And so I wanted to share this with you guys. I couldn't put it into any better words. Typically, I try to read commentaries, take the little pieces that I like, and then then, um, explain it in in a context for us. In this case, there is no better way I could come to say this other than to just read word for word what G. Campbell Morgan said. This is a bit of a lengthy quote. It's going to be on the screen. I want you guys to read with me, ears open, pay attention to the words on why Jesus was baptized. He asked, then why was he baptized? He was baptized as a repenting soul. He, his also was a baptism of repentance. His also was a baptism of the confession of sins. In that hour, he repented. He confessed sins. But the repentance was not for himself. The sins were not his own. In that hour, he identified himself with the multitudes who had been thronging out to baptism, identified himself with them in the consciousness of sin, in repentance for it, in confession of it. In that hour of baptism, we see the most solemn and wonderful sight of the servant of God who had come from the silence and seclusion of Nazareth, taking upon himself the burden of human sin, counting it as if it were his own sin, doing that to which an apostolic writer ultimately referred by declaring he was made sin. G. Campbell Morgan. Jesus Christ came to this earth and was baptized in full repentance for the remission of sins on our behalf. This, amen, this very moment would set up his step-by-step walk that would lead him all the way to the finished product on the cross. This was Jesus looking at what he was being called to do and saying, without any doubt, first step, I take it right now with the full intention to complete it. 
more beautiful explanation of Jesus' baptism, you will not find. I don't believe you can. Until we're in heaven, God's going to blow our minds all over the place. This identification with us in our sins caused an incredible response from heaven. Immediately caused this reaction from the heavens, which we see in verse 10, which it uh, says, As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Like a dove, a creature that Jesus himself will later describe as innocent. A dove is very gentle. It's a lowly bird. More than that, though, the dove was also part of, part of the guilt offering that a family could bring if they were really, really poor. It was this offering of, I have nothing, but this little dove, but this dove. It'd be like if the spirit despend, descended like a five-pound sack of dried oats from Winco. I'll explain, I'll explain. <laughs> you see, those, those babies last way longer than a box of Captain Crunch and a gallon of milk. They last way longer. I know this from experience. You see, my dad went back to college at the age of 40, and there were like seven of us. Not like, there were literally seven of us, plus dogs. <laughs> so we ate a lot of oatmeal. And I'm not talking about those fancy little flavored packets y'all got now. Raw oats. <laughs> Raw oats. And tap water. <laughs> Mom, my oats aren't creamy. Put tap water in it. That's water. It's not going to work. Yes, it will. Stop complaining. You see, it was always embarrassing to have friends overnight because that meant we were going to have to explain. So, uh, there's no frosted flakes. Just raw, plain oatmeal. Oh, that's fine. Where's the milk? It's over there in the faucet. <laughs> and it looks a lot like tap water. <laughs> to this day, to this day, I kid you not, and I apologize to anybody who's ever served me oatmeal. I don't know if you have or not. I despise plain oatmeal. I just do. It is the lowest form of breakfast. <laughs> lowest form of breakfast. <laughs> Jesus is the kind of friend that shows up to the door with a bag of dried oats, boils them, and eats with us just to make himself approachable to us. What a lesson. If we could live that out every day in our lives, to humble and limit ourselves to those around us, not going to impress, but to make ourselves approachable. It's kind of changed my view of going over to somebody's house now. Somebody invites me over for dinner. I'm, I, I can only read this and be changed by God's heart and think I need to come in a way that is approachable to who I need to think about them. I don't want to show up and impress them. I want to come be approachable. 
See, Jesus is doing exactly what the Father had asked him to do. Jesus was so grand, so majestic, all the power of the universe. But he was doing exactly what the Father had asked him to. This terrible and grand mission is about to begin, and God is well pleased with the condition of Jesus' all-powerful and yet humbly contained heart. That moves us into the temptation of Jesus. He had been baptized. And then in verse 12, we hear that immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Immediately. Why immediately? It's to get started. Rather, why not immediately? You see, we were also baptized. We were anointed with the Holy Spirit. We too are supposed to have this mentality. You've been baptized. Start living out what he's called you to. Immediately, Jesus waits for nothing. Straight into the wilderness. Step two. And it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. This word evokes the idea of being pushed, being thrown, being thrusted into the wilderness. He had the Spirit of God within him, and it compelled him to just go straight to the desert. And then verse 13 tells you the condition of that desert. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving. Before we get to the good stuff, I want to point out a couple little fun facts. Not facts. Little fun things I, I thought were fun. Wild animals. Wild animals. You actually find that phrase, wild animals, throughout Scripture in a few places, and it doesn't necessarily re refer to an untamed animal like we would think of it now. It refers to a ferocious animal. It's an aggressive animal. It's a dangerous thing to be with the wild animals. In the wilderness with God, nature, and the wild animals. Just like Adam started. Well, but there's one more individual here. There's one more individual, and just like Adam, Jesus, in his isolated wilderness with the wild animals and God, is not, it's not just that. Satan, right there, is right there. Mark gives us the most crucial detail about this temptation. He doesn't say, like I've always had in my head, for some reason, that Jesus fasted for 40 days, and then, boom, all these temptations, he succeeded and was gone. That's not what he says. He says that for 40 days was being tempted. 40 days. That's more than a month. You see, Jesus, in this picture... Jesus is the, the next perfect man. He's the only man that remained perfect, but Adam was created and he was sinless and he was pure. And so now we have Jesus here, similar, sinless, pure. So he's sort of like the second Adam. You've probably heard that phrase, the second Adam, or I like to, as I like to call, Adam done right. Adam done right. How appropriate that the isolation, isolated temptation of Jesus, his Garden of Eden, 
if you will, would be a desert. What was the first garden? Lush, full of fruit, delicious things to eat, life. Jesus' garden, his temptation location was a desert. Where the first Adam started with abundant life, surrounded by every good thing to eat, earth as it should be, or earth done right, so much abundance in excess, how could any man be tempted by anything? Hmm. Jesus enters earth as it is now after the fall. Surrounded by barren death, the thorns and thistles have indeed taken their toll, and there is no abundance or excess. His garden is a desert, surely in the midst of nothing, everything, anything, anything would be a temptation to Jesus. He has nothing. It's a barren desert. Jesus spent 40 days with one-on-one temptation from the greatest tempter to ever exist. Slowly and surely, he grew physically weaker and weaker, each night longer and longer, each day feeling hotter and drier than the last, 40 days without any of his familiar carpentry tools, no work to be done, and yet, no rest. There was no rest in 40 days of temptation with the enemy, in fasting. And on top of that, no human companionship. Here's his garden, here's his temptation, but where's his Eve? Where is Jesus' Eve in this analogy? Jesus, the Adam done right, didn't start with an Eve in the garden. He came here to redeem his Eve. Forty days of torment. (laughs) Amen. 40 days of torment without rest and without blemish accomplished. Done. So how did he do it? Through obedience to the Father and his word for the purpose of, in part, to redeem his Eve. Make no mistake, we are redeemed and are being redeemed through the power, a power which looked like weakness, Jesus. I want you guys to do this with me. I want you to think on his experience in the desert, this 40 days of nightmarish temptation and and pain and physical depletion. I want you to allow that sacrifice of his sinless, the sinless quiet carpenter, in the desert, to increase your appreciation of these passages from Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, For you are saved by grace, through faith, 
and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. What a tremendous gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. No one can boast. I, before I move on to the next one, I made the mistake of watching pro bowling recently. And now don't get me wrong. It was great. It was great. Um, I didn't know anything about bowling. I don't, I, like, I'm not a bowler, but I just, I saw it on YouTube. I was like, sure, let's see what that's like. And there's this guy, this, this little guy, this little guy who's so good at bowling. He's one of those guys, you know, wears sunglasses indoors. He's got the hair slicked back. Really good bowler. He throws his perfect strike, wins some world title or something, and he turns around, starts screaming at the crowd, and one of the things he screams is, who do you think you are? I am. With all of the, the gestures, just the thumbs up, I am. Just screams it right at the crowd. No, you're not. No, you're not. Jesus is the only thing worth boasting in. Thing, the only person the cross is the only work. His life is the only life worth boasting in. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Gave himself for her. That's putting it so lightly to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. His Eve, you and I, every believer throughout all history, all time, all mankind, though call upon the name of Jesus. Jesus endured more temptation than we'll ever be exposed to. He knows what it feels like in good times and in bad. That should encourage us when he calls us to withstand temptation. He knows and he cares. He knows and he cares. Jesus has seen everything that the world can throw at him. He has seen everything that Satan can throw at him. He knows what we're going through, and not just through an intellectual knowledge, but an actual personal experience beyond what we have ever tried. This too should increase our view and appreciation of one more verse. I want to throw one more verse. With this temptation in mind. Luke 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. 
Jesus said this to the man that was going to deny him in his darkest hour. Why? Because Jesus was there. He was tempted by the enemy. He knows what's coming for Simon. Simon Peter. He knows. And he cares so deeply. Jesus' heart for us, even his prayer for us, is that our faith would not fail. That our faith would be strengthened. That's his prayer for us. And that we would also draw near to the Lord. Why is that his heart? Because he loves us and he knows that's what's required. And he knows that is what is shaken by the enemy. Our faith. We lose our faith in what God is doing. We lose our faith due to our circumstances. And so he prays that faith would not be weakened. By limiting himself as human, he had to rely on the Father. He had to not lose faith. Going to the absolute depths, he got to experience what happens when a man relies on the Father and does not lose faith. He walked out of that desert sinless. That brings us to our last portion of today. This beginning of of Jesus' ministry has taken, he's been anointed, he's been baptized, he's been anointed, he's been tested and found true. So what do you do after that? Once again, you just dive straight into the next step. After John was arrested in verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, where he's from, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. And here's his message to everybody who would listen to him. Repent and believe the good news. That is six words. Six words. Repent and believe the good news. Simple message. At this point, John was arrested because his job was finished. And and with him, all the proclamations and prophecies that a Messiah would come or is coming. So what does Jesus do? Back to Galilee. And he's proclaiming, not quite like John. His proclamation is a little bit different than John's. You see, John was proclaiming the one that is coming. And Jesus is proclaiming that the time is fulfilled. Time is fulfilled. Think about the spiritual side of things for a moment. This time has been fulfilled. You have Jesus preaching this in the streets. Satan just spent 40 days trying to cause Jesus to fall. He had a whole desert and a lot of time, and it didn't work. Satan was the most powerful, is the most powerful evil force available. So they threw their best at it. They threw a nuke at it. Nothing worked. You failed. And now, imagine the fear and anxiety Satan and his demons must be feeling as they watch this humble carpenter from Nazareth. 
with unbreakable devotion and obedience to God, walk into Galilee after showing that he is available to even the lowest and weakest of Satan's prey. He's here for all of them. You think Satan wants to lose his prey? They had to have watched each step Jesus took with fear and trembling, anger, anxiety, every negative emotion you can imagine, frustration. And he's just a humble, lowly carpenter. Spiritual warfare is radically different than human warfare. And it's the warfare that we've been called to. So this is what we have to figure out. This is what we are called to understand. This heart of this humble carpenter from Nazareth, his obedience, his weakness, his faith in the Lord, that is what we have to figure out if we are to fight well the battle. Humble and lowly by human appearance. To the enemy of mankind, he walked as the force with the authority to remove death's power over man. Worship team, you can come on up. This is our marching orders, the character of Christ. As we go through the gospel of Mark, Mike has been encouraging me in the office to hone in and look and dig and search for the character of Christ within the details. Find Jesus's character, his heart, his will, his purpose, his meaning in the details. We're going to blast through this book. Mark is kind of a blasty uh, book anyways. He fires details at us. And when we just went through the baptism, the temptation, and he went to Galilee in like three sentences. We're going to blast through this. I've been already having a blast looking for Jesus in all the details. Can't miss it. We only have so many sermons we get to sit through together as a family. We only have so many studies through the book of Mark, before our days are numbered and we're called home. The beginning, Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. This is what we have seen so far. Human proclamation by John, baptism, heavenly proclamation and anointing, anointing temptation and isolation, and then Jesus proclaims that the time is fulfilled, repent and believe, the good news, and he brings good news. Lord, we come together as a group, one of many times, and yet far too few times, to honor your name, to worship you, to recognize correctly your position, your authority over all creation, your goodness, your holiness, your righteousness, you are good. You are so, so good. We are overwhelmed by the simple details about the truth of your work. Jesus, be honored by every heart in this room this morning. We 
pray this in your name. Amen.